call to worship spontaneously. Um, throughout the last month in July, we were really fortunate to have members of this congregation to share their spiritual journey and to get to know them a little more deeply. One of the things um, that I did not have time to fit into my spiritual journey was when I started to become aware of my own identity as an anti-racist. And since that's a large part of our conversation today, I thought that might be a helpful story to share with you all. Um, I remember being about 11 or 12. So just getting ready, I think, to go into middle school and growing up in my neighborhood, which was pretty diverse. Um, it was not a homogenous neighborhood. And when I would walk with my um, friends who were white, you know, when police were patrolling the neighborhood, how are you girls doing tonight? What can I do for you? Is everything great? Very, you know, um, conversational, warm, um, inviting with police officers. So I had never had any other interactions other than that, especially as a cisgender white woman or young child at the time. Now, with my same friends, so I have to give you a little background about my friends. Tammy, I've known my whole life, and she is white. My other friend, Tamara, to not be confused, <laughs> and they were friends, is biracial and presents as Black. Her sister, Danielle, is also biracial, but presents often as white. And so in their own family, would see how they'd be perceived differently alone or together. So one night, you know, duskish summertime around this time of year, you know, we're walking at what, eight o'clock-ish um, from one of our houses to the other. And the interaction with the police officer is very different. Who are you? Where are you going? Do you live in this neighborhood? Why are you here? What are your intentions? And that took me aback. And that was the first interaction I had where I realized this isn't okay, that there is another story happening in my very own neighborhood that I was unaware of. And from that point forward, that started to change how I was engaging in my community, how I was engaging in my school, how I was engaging with my parents, with my friends, and really sparked in me. And so one of the things I hope that you will think about today as we get into a little bit more of this work and this work together is to think about when did that spark happen for you? Has that happened? What led to those conversations? What led to those seeds starting to get planted? How did they grow? Who helped nurture them? And how did that help you come into your identity as a Unitarian Universalist? And maybe you're still just coming to that. And that's okay too. So the reading that Cynthia had chosen today, fortunately I have. Um, and so as we're talking about back to, we're coming to this time of year, which kind of also starts off the church year, even if you don't have children in school, we kind of start to think about it as a new year, a new opportunity, a new journey um, to have for the next nine months. What else happens in nine months? Like births of children, right? So whole ideas can come to realization in that time. So um, Cynthia uh, came across this uh, piece by James Baldwin. And 
I love James Baldwin. I came to know James Baldwin and Toni Morrison on my own in eighth grade, and they have become um, steady teachers for me ever since. So I've been involved with them for about 30 years. So it kind of made my heart leap when Cynthia said she'd like to share a talk to teachers. So we often make assumptions that everybody has the same context. So Cynthia and I thought it would be really helpful to make sure we're all coming into this readings and our learnings today with context and making sure we're explicit about what was happening. So this um, speech that James Baldwin presented in New York City and on October 16th, 1963 was 16 years before I was even born. My parents weren't married yet and yet we're still talking about it today. That's pretty profound. It later was published in the Saturday um, Review. Now, what was going on at that time? At that time, Medgar Evers, friend of James Baldwin and a leading civil rights figure was murdered in the driveway by a white supremacist in Jackson, Mississippi. Also, that year, four young girls, Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, were killed when Klansmen bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Weeks after Baldwin gave this speech, JFK would be assassinated, and in the following few years, we would lose Malcolm X and MLK. So to understand when he says, let's begin by saying that we are living through a very dangerous talk in the beginning of his talk, what all was going on and how eerily similar we are in dangerous times now. This is only part of it because it's a long talk, but I highly encourage you to seek it out. Since I am talking to school teachers and I am not a teacher myself and in some ways am fairly easily intimidated, I beg you to let me leave that and go back to what I think to be the entire purpose of education in the first place. It would seem to me that when a child is born, if I am a child's parent, it is my obligation and my high duty to civilize that child. Man is a social animal. He cannot exist without a society. A society in turn depends on certain things which everyone within that society takes for granted. Now, the crucial paradox which confronts us here is that the whole process of education occurs within a social framework and is designed to perpetuate the aims of society. Thus, for example, the children who were born during the era of the Third Reich were educated to the purpose of the Third Reich and became barbarians. The paradox of education is precisely this, that as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which they are being educated. The purpose of education, finally, is to create in a person the ability to look at the world for themselves to make their own decisions, 
to say to themselves, this is black or this is white, to decide for themselves whether there is a God in heaven or not, to ask questions of the universe and then learn to live with those questions in the way they achieve their own identity. But no society is really anxious to have that kind of person around. What societies really ideally want is citizenry, which will simply obey the rules of society. If a society succeeds in this, that society is about to perish. The obligation of anyone who thinks of themselves as responsible is to examine society and to try and change it and fight it. And no matter what risk, this is the only hope society has. This is the only way societies change. In preparation for the sermon, I surveyed a few of my liberal friends who are a little older, a little younger than me, and asked them how many of them had heard of unpacking the invisible knapsack. And I was surprised and not surprised to find that some of them had heard it. I think only like two or three. Some of them have heard references to it. That was a little bit more. And many had no idea. And yet these are people who I know to be social justice minded and to be engaged in the work, right? And who are reading some of these very same books that are sitting on my reading pile right now. And you know what they say when we make assumptions. <laughs> and too often we make assumptions that everybody has the same information. Everybody has the same foundation. And so I thought, well, that's the sermon, Adrian. That's the part today is let's make sure everybody is at the same starting point. And so I hope if you've heard some of this before, you will bear with me. And I hope if this is new for you and it needs to sit a while and percolate, you keep coming back and hear more and more and start to kind of put puzzle pieces together and engage in conversation with one another. One of the hardest things to do when we do anti-racist work is to pause and to go back to the stage that we just left in our own development, in our own work, and bring someone along with you. And yet that is the, the best use of your time sometimes in this work is to make sure someone else isn't treading water and nearing drowning when you have the tools right there. If you're willing to slow yourself down, pause, help, and bring them along so they can join you. So let's start back with Baldwin. I think it's really important as we're hearing conversations going on right now about education, as we're seeing public school education under attack, as we're seeing teachers being questioned for their authority. These are people who have gone to school, who are committed to educating. 
committed to learning themselves and continuing to grow. And yet we're questioning their judgment and whether they can use things in their classroom. We're also in a place where for so many years, I think my whole childhood and now through my own children's childhood, our curriculum's coming from one place who's approving it. <laughs> and as our principal calls us to grow by searching for truth and meaning, and it employs us to ask questions, those are actually a lot of the things that Baldwin gets at throughout his work over time. Education allows the individual to question the society they are learning in and about. However, much of society seeks to suppress this questioning as someone who consistently questions and disobeys as seen as dangerous to national order. How many of us in our own educations stopped asking questions? I was one of those kids. I always had questions. And I'd be like, wait, and there, please put your hand down. Right? I was just in a training uh, over the summer. Lynette was there with me. I think Louise took it earlier in the summer, and so did Reverend Nick. And it was about um, anti-racism in children and empowering children. Well, everything that children get from an early age in school balks that. It says, do as you say, do as I say, respect authority, sit in your desk, take your notes, right answer, wrong answer. There's a binary, there's no in between, there's no room for dialogue. And that's how you're conditioned from a very early age. You watch kids who are in, I was a preschool teacher, kids who are in preschool are encouraged to process. There is not a product. It is about learning by doing. It is, well, that tower fell. Hmm, why did it fall? Was the foundation shaky? Someone has an idea. Someone else has an idea. There's collaboration from a really early age. And they start to look at that and solve problems in amazing, unique ways. And if you look at them on like the genius scale, preschoolers are there and we lose it. We lose it because in the systems, in the infrastructure that we are consumed by, that has to be shed to be able to fit in, to be in your neat, tidy box. And what can we do to change that? So this is where I started thinking. <clears throat> and again, another point in my realization on my own anti-racism journey. I actually, I think it was probably just a few years ago. Someone asked a question on Facebook. When uh, did you have your first black male teacher? Just give you a minute to think about that. For me, I did not have my first black male teacher till high school. However, that black male teacher had also taught my brothers who are a generation ahead of me by 10 and 12 years. However, I had had seven BIPOC teachers before high school, starting with my kindergarten teacher, my third grade teacher, my fourth grade teacher. I had very little in middle school, which is why I ended up meeting Baldwin and Morrison. 
because my needs weren't being met. And then in high school, I had an amazing um, Latinx professor who followed us in literature for a couple of years. She kept coming back because she wanted to work with us so much. Um, I had a Latinx music teacher and I realized through just that little Facebook post, what I considered normal was actually not a shared experience by many of my friends that I knew. And I bring that up because when we think about our sources as Unitarian Universalists, we're challenged to think about direct experience, right? Your direct experience, what happened to you and how that shapes the lenses with which you look at things and you go out into the world. And so if you have never had that experience of someone with a different identity teaching you, guiding you, and bringing their direct experience into the materials they're teaching, are your needs actually being met? Are you being challenged? Are you being fed? And what does that do to our system? If a child growing up never sees a teacher that looks like them, are they likely to go into teaching? And thus it continues in a vicious cycle. And even talking with my own children in Bloomington, Indiana, they had a much less diverse experience in their education growing up here in the 2000s, in the 2010s mostly. <laughs> so our opening hymn encourages us, encourages us, don't be afraid of some change. My experience with UU is we aren't afraid of change. We are willing, but sometimes we don't know where to start. We don't know where to take those good intentions and that energy. And so this is where the intersection of Baldwin and the invisible knapsack come in. So Baldwin's encouraging us that we all, as responsible members of society, are teachers. We are caregivers. We, in our interactions with other people, can share what we know share what we've lived through. So are we willing to go back and revisit what we learned, what we didn't learn, what we didn't know we didn't know, right? And to then question why, why wasn't I taught that? Why didn't I learn that? If any of you follow podcasts, there's some good ones out there. There's um, Lies My Teacher Told Me and Things You Missed in History Class. As I mentioned before, I'm married to history nerds. So these are things that we talk about on our walks. Um, and I go, why didn't I learn that, right? And as an adult, after you've had some of these lived experiences, how you interpret that is different. And what you can recall from your younger education can affect how you're interpreting what you're hearing now, sometimes for the first time. So <clears throat> the invisible backpack, that is a widely circulated article by Peggy McIntosh, circulated in like 1989, so I was 10, okay? <laughs> I didn't hear it when it came out, but what happened was I started reading things now 
I started reading things that were of the time. And when I read those things, it was, um, it was there in a shorthand. People would just, oh, you remember this. Oh, you know that. Well, what happens when we shorthand things? Sometimes when we do shorthand, we lose some of the details. We lose the nuances. We lose the context of what is going on. And those are actually really key things, especially in storytelling, that help you connect, that help you to find, oh, that's a parallel in my life. Oh, I've wondered that. I didn't realize other people were wondering that too, that part of we're not alone in this work. And so when Peggy McIntosh um, published this, um, she very much spoke from her perspective. It often gets used in guilt and shame and blame and benefits nobody. She's very adamant that you understand her work as her experience. And she made comparisons, for example, to other Black women her age in her field working at that time. She didn't try to speak for everyone, you know, but this was my experience in comparison to the people I see and know and interact with. And what she um, came to know from it was that it was systemic. She had been taught and conditioned to understand racism as meanness. It is directly between you and another person and driven from this very um, personal space. And she wasn't taught to look at the bigger ideas, to look at the structure within the system. The fact that she knew where her next meal was coming from, that she had a passport, that she could look at a TV show and see someone that looks like her, that she could open a book and the character looked like her, that a magazine looked like her. And when she started to have this realization for herself, that's when she started to understand that racism is in the water we swim in. And that when you start to see that in society, then you can get to this work that Baldwin's been asking us to do for 56 years. How do we go forward? What is the call? What are we being asked to do? Well, as we look at that eighth principle work, our eighth principle says, journeying towards spiritual wholeness. Let me pause there. I think we can probably agree there is brokenness in our world. We feel it. We see it. We hear it. I feel like many of us are not dismissing that idea. Don't we want to be whole? Are we committed to figuring out how to make it whole? That's the first part. Second part, to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community. Where do you live? What is your proximity? Are you engaged in work 
in interactions with people who do not look the same as you, with people who do not believe the same as you. One of the things Toni Morrison said as she was editing and revisiting James Baldwin's work was that by reading his work, it gave her language. I believe that's a fundamental thing many of us are facing. We were never given language to have these conversations. Midwest nice, we were taught it's not proper to talk about that. There was colorblindness. We shouldn't notice differences. And now we're saying, don't you want to build with me? Go back to that preschool mindset. How much fun and joy did you have in collaborating, in working with others, in building? And the satisfaction just from doing it together. It didn't matter if it leaned. It didn't matter if it was perfect. It mattered that you listened to each other, that you built together. Everybody's voices were heard. And you remember when your voice wasn't heard and how crummy it felt. We're now going back to that time and asking you, how would you like it built? How can you imagine it? Shed all those boxes, shed all the no's. You can't do this. You can't ask that. What if we could? What if we could imagine it? And the last part of the eighth principle are actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. You have to do your own work, but you are not in your work alone. This community is here to help you. In this community, you're going to find someone who's going to pause and give you the tools and help bring you along. In this community, we hold you with love and care, not shame and guilt, and want to have you at the table and in the conversation and help us figure out how to move forward. <sighs> So with that, I'm going to invite you to take a nice deep breath in and out. And I promise, because I've left you with a lot of heavy things, that Brandy's going to come up and join me. And we have a blessing for you all, because you all are lifelong learners as well. This is Beatitudes for Justice Builders by Lindy Ramsden. Blessed are you who can question your own assumptions and listen with an open mind. You will receive new insights beyond your imagining. Blessed are you who suffer the attacks of others to stand up for what is right. You will not be alone for your courage will inspire others to rise. Blessed are you who build friendships as well as justice. Even when you lose an issue, you will have strengthened the foundation of your community. Blessed are you who take delight in people. You will not be bored in meetings. 
Blessed are you who agitate the placid waters of complacency. You will create waves in the inertia of privilege and will know the thrill of riding the surf of change. Blessed are you who lead with enthusiasm and confidence, resisting the temptation to shame the apathetic or self-absorbed. You will inspire curiosity and hope in others. Blessed are you who play as well as you work. You will have more fun, build more energy, and will draw the powers of the impish to your cause. <laughs> Blessed are you who ask for help in your role as leaders. You will find teachers at every turn, and your work will remain interesting and alive. Blessed are you who, when wrongfully attacked, find safe outlets for your righteous rage. Your mind will be clear, your decisions strategic, and your progress will not be derailed by the backlash of the fearful. Blessed are you who do not demonize your opponents. Your eyes and your hearts will be open. Blessed are you who sing and dance. And let me invite you to just listen for a second to that joyful music coming from the nursery. <laughs> you will find energy and joy to lift you on your journey. Blessed are you who offer thanks and praise fivefold for every critique. Your children will want to visit after they're grown. People will want to serve on your committees and friends will be interested in your opinions. Blessed are you who study the rhythms of history. You will have knowledge with which to shape the future. Blessed are you who work in coalition rather than in principled isolation. You will meet great people, learn things you didn't realize you needed to know and have partners for the journey when you are in the lead or in need. Blessed are you who volunteer to be secretary and take good minutes. Your words will become history and your efforts will move steadily forward rather than running absentmindedly over thoroughly discussed ground. <clears throat> you will see, wait, hold on. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Blessed are you who discover, train, and encourage young leaders. You will see your work expand and grow beyond your own time and talent. Blessed are you who can change your mind. You are still alive. <laughs> Blessed are you who will not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You will see progress in your lifetime. Blessed are you with an active spiritual life. You will find perspective and comfort in times of loss and betrayal and will rise without cynicism to meet the challenges of a new day. Blessed are you who live from a place of gratitude. For you will know the meaning of life.